Welcome to the uh, the news desk. We are going to be covering the election. <laughs> yeah. Today you with David McPherson. <laughs> we all need distraction. Let's talk about something else. Yeah, yeah. De- definitely. So, David, you're taking guitar lessons. Yeah, I have for a while, uh, off and on. I just started them again kind of midway through the pandemic here. Figured uh, help motivate me a bit. My son takes them, so ah. try and uh, you know, be able to get caught up with him. For sure. I That's just it. picked up a, a guitar for the first time ever on mm. Saturday. Okay. So my fingers are hurting right now. Oh, that's a good thing. Yeah. Is it okay? I just want to make sure people. He's, he's never worked so hard in his life. David yeah. never worked so hard. <laughs> Hi, the following podcast is brought to you by Radical Road Brewery, the best craft beer in the heart of Leslieville. Find them at 1177 Queen Street East. That's Radical Road Brewery. Hi, I'm David McPherson, author of The Legendary Horseshoe Tavern, A Complete History. Welcome to the music. Welcome, 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 welcome! Awesome, glad, glad to have you with us. I know, uh, I know you and I connected on Twitter a while ago, and a couple of years ago, I guess now, probably, um, probably through Bedini, I think. Yeah, and through some of the conversations there, and you know, I've been really excited um, to get you on here so we can have a conversation about you know the book and you know what you're working on as well. I'm really, really excited to have you here. Oh, I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks. I actually want to. I actually want to start this off um, and share with you. I'm going to mute my phone so it's not beeping in the background here. Uh, I think Kareem probably got the same beep. Um, so I want to share a quick story, and it's going back. How old am I? So it's going back about 55 years, and a woman named not Irene Tilson at that point moved to Spadina and college, I believe it is. And she meets this guy, Peter Tilston, and they go on dates to the Horseshoe Tavern. And <laughs> that's awesome. That's how, that's how I, not maybe not how I came to be, but that's <laughs> yeah, a story I wanted to start off with this yeah. because there's so much <laughs> history to it. And, um, you know, perhaps I'm here because of the Horseshoe Tavern as well. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, you never know. And I, I, I do think that that's quite appropriate to start with that because that's what I found uh, throughout my research and talking to so many musicians and just general, uh, you know, music fans like yourselves that, you know, have been to shows there that uh, going back that far, there's so many different generations of people who either, you know, went to university in Toronto and, you know, that was one of the, the places they frequented or grew up in the city and then moved away or, uh, like Basil Donovan, uh, you know, he talks about his his parents going there and coming home and telling them about the concerts they saw. And, you know, so it's neat when you get that uh, multi-generation thing happening. And uh, uh, that that's what I find so fascinating. And like you said, who knows if, uh, you know, you're being here <laughs> as a part of it. I mean, I'm uh, you know, people have been married there. And uh, uh, I know I know Grant Lawrence. Uh, you know, uh, he and uh, Joe Barber, that's that's where they met, uh, I understand. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it, 
is a special place in, in many ways as a meeting place as well. Yeah. And it's funny too, because you talk about like generational stories, you know, fast forward to a couple of years ago and myself and my kids, and I think we went and saw Ill Scarlet over the Christmas holidays a couple of years back at the horseshoe. And I remember saying to my son, who's now 25, so he'd have been like 23 or whatever at the time. I remember saying, okay, think about the checkerboard floors. And he's like, yeah, why? And I go, look down. And he's just like, whoa. And he got goosebumps. I got goosebumps just thinking about it. Because again, you know, the, 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 the history, the mystique, the stories. And so now there's, you know, from grandparent to grandchild, enjoying the horseshoe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that's what I love about telling these stories and what has always fascinated, fascinated me about history is, you know, and the importance of, especially in this time uh, we're living through in the pandemic. I mean, as we all know, uh, venues like the Horseshoe are, are the ones that have been hurt almost uh, the hardest in terms of small businesses. And, you know, you, you hate to see these places close that uh, really a lot of them are cultural institutions in, in the cities where they are. And, uh, you know, without them, um, you know, these next generations, as you you mentioned, won't have those memories uh, to share and, and mm. uh, be able to experience uh, these places that, you know, their parents or grandparents did. Mm-hmm. Nice. I didn't know this was going to be a podcast about <laughs> Greg's family <laughs> and their their relationship with with the horseshoe uh, with yeah. the horseshoe tavern. Um, Greg, do you happen to, to know what what sort of shows they they saw? Actually, they they they, they said they if they saw shows, they don't remember bands. They just more went for drinks, like casual, like a date mm-hmm. or a drink, uh, probably in the front. Well, actually, back then it probably would have the whole room, the whole room. But anyway, yeah, no, they would go for just a couple of drinks and either to start before dinner or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Well, that, nice. that's another neat side of the horseshoe that, you know, some people, they they probably have never stepped foot in that back room, right? I mean, oh. you know, for us uh, music lovers, I mean, that that's what the horseshoe means more is, you know, going through that front bar you know, maybe you'll stop there or mingle there before the show, have a drink, but it's getting to that back room and, uh, you know, watching a great live performance. But there is lots of people that, uh, you know, it's more a watering hole or a, yeah, a meeting a local, spot, yeah. a, a local uh, for them, a place to go after work or like your parents, like you said, yeah. they maybe stopped in there for a drink because they lived in the neighborhood and, you know, then went on somewhere else. But. Mm-hmm. It was it was interesting uh, seeing some of the photos in the book and the description of the venue. And I'm like, uh, again, I was telling Greg earlier, you know, I, uh, I haven't been to many shows in, in smaller venues. I've been to uh, two in the past, you know, pre COVID in the past year before that. And I remember sort of, you know, you got to squeeze through the bar area almost to get to, Oh, oh God, there's some space here yeah. in the back. Um, so it was really interesting to see that, you know, probably people like Greg's parents have a different idea if they haven't been to the horseshoe in many years, what the horseshoe is. Right. Oh, for sure. I mean, cause at one time it was, it was probably double the size. Yeah. Um, and it had a different layout and there was tables in there. I mean, if you go back and look in the, uh, the early seventies of the stomp and Tom Connors movie that you could probably find on YouTube, you know, that gives you a little bit of a sense of because you can see there's, you know, tables crammed all right in front of the stage. And, uh, 
you know, people drinking the little stubby beer bottles and uh, ashtrays on the table, that kind of thing. So it was definitely a different vibe uh, uh, for sure. Oops. Why did you, David, decide to, and the book's been out a couple of years now, I think. Um, yeah, hard to believe. Yeah, it came out uh, just three years ago, uh, yeah. last month or so. Yeah. Why did you decide to write it in the first place? Well, I've always had a love of history and a love of live music and always wanted to write a book. And it was kind of a... You know, all these things kind of came together in a way. I was out at the Dakota Tavern one night and I met a fellow journalist. We got chatting and just mentioned my interest in, you know, wanting to write a book on music someday. And he goes, oh, I know this publisher, Dundurn, that's looking to get more and doing some music titles. I, I could pass on, you know, the editor's name. And yeah, one thing led to another. I, I kind of had the idea of the horseshoe as a book. I was surprised that nothing had ever been done. And I knew the 70th anniversary was coming up. Uh, so I thought there's a good peg, good angle. And uh, yeah, I pitched it to the publisher. And surprising, they, they already, their sales team had already kind of threw that idea out there. So in a way, it was a little kind of fortuitous, uh, you know, right place, right time a bit. But, uh, you know, I, I feel, you know, lucky and humbled that uh, the success it's had and uh, the support I've got for, uh, you know, since this book came out from, you know, just regular fans, yeah. uh, you know, to the musician community and the, the music industry community. So uh, I, I'm glad I did it. And, uh, you know, it's one of those uh, just to talk about that or uh, example, when I had my book launch at the Horseshoe, uh, in October a few years ago and uh, you know Jim Cuddy showed up and you know while I was signing books and you know I basically I said you know thanked him for for writing the foreword and he really said no thank you for writing this book and uh, you know, that was something to hear you know a musician of his stature and all, a lot of the musicians that were there that night or I've run into since I mean a lot of them are said that like thanking me for because I guess like we talked about you know at the start of the conversation it, it by having a, a document like this now, at least it, it helps to keep this place alive and uh, uh, for future generations, right? You, you hope that it will still be around, you know, when my grandkids, right? Or your grandkids or their kids, Yeah. you know, but you never know, right? And that's what this pandemic has showed. There's been so many venues that have closed and, you know, a lot of them are hanging on by, uh, you know, every ounce of luck yeah. that they can and uh you know hopefully that you know the these venues will will survive uh, it, it's interesting because uh, you know not fast forward to the last chapter because i want to get into much more in between but even you know to, to your point the last chapter you know you're, you're saying you know who knows what's in store you know i think um, Lasky and had like five more years or potentially whatever with the just renewed the lease I believe at the time or something along that lines and mm -hmm. you know it's interesting to say that or to read that and then here we are we're in this middle of this pandemic so yeah um yeah, yeah and like no one could, could have yeah no one could have fathomed and what this would do and as we all know the you know live music is probably one of the last things that we'll be able to come back whenever this uh, and back the way we kind of 
like to enjoy it, right? Uh, with, with larger crowds and that, it, it's still going to be quite a while. So, was this this was your first book, right, David? Yes, it was. Yeah. Nice. Was it, how, like tell me about sort of you know diving into writing a book with with uh, with with no experience of this kind. Uh, you know, where did you start? Yeah, it was it was a little overwhelming at first. I uh, I think once I signed the contract and I, I met with the uh, with Jeff uh, Cohen and Craig at the Horseshoe. Uh, you know, we had lunch at the Rivoli one day because I wanted to make sure they were on board and understood, you know, my approach. And from there, it was, uh, you know, once they were they had bought in, uh, you know, they kind of suggested some people I, I should talk to. And, and they started hooking me up with the, those people. And so I kind of started, I, I, I had to put together a, a proposal that kind of had a, a chronological, here's what the book's going to look like. Uh, so having that outline certainly helped. Uh, but basically, I kind of started off with kind of a list of people I wanted to talk to. And then it was one of those things, uh, you know, I've been a journalist for over 20, 25 years. And uh, you know, what do you do as a journalist? You, you ask, try and ask great questions. And uh, as I interviewed people and asked different uh, questions, uh, you know, it led to more interviews and more, oh, you should talk to this person or, you know, have you, have you thought about talking to them or have you looked down this, uh, this angle or that? So, you know, I really focused on the research and the interviews and what I told people that uh, I, I'm, a great procrastinator. And, uh, I think that helped for a while that I was just like, oh, I'll just keep doing interviews. I'll just, you know, that I don't have to write this thing. Right. Uh, so I kind of kept that at bay, but that's where, you know, finally my <laughs> wife, my wife was like, you know, you, you better uh, start writing this thing. Uh, you know, have you started writing your book yet kind of thing? And, oh no, I got, I got one more interview to do. So, uh, but th that's kind of how it started. And then eventually I was, I, in a way, you know, some might start more chronological and right from the beginning. Um, but the way I did it with this book, it was uh, I kind of felt once I decided I had enough information, say it was like on the country era, or it was I'd interviewed a lot of people. I just started writing that chapter. I just got to get, you know, get something down on the page. And I didn't worry about it, you know, writing it from start to finish kind of thing. Um, right. It was more, you know, what what I felt at that particular moment uh, and, you know, then I pieced it all together, uh, afterwards. There's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of history when we talk about sort of the country time, like a lot of the book is focused on, not focused on that, but there's a huge chunk of that. Yeah. Um, and I, I find it really interesting because, you know, I'm, you know, being a musician from the late eighties, mid eighties to early nineties, you know, that's the time that I know. Whereas my wife was saying that she really wants her dad to dive deep into those early years and that he would mm -hmm. completely geek out over some of those stories. Cause I mean, you went, you went pretty deep in some as not aspects, but in some, some of the stories, like, you know, how were you able to dig out since it was so long ago, some of those amazing pieces of history? Uh, yeah. I mean, first off, yeah, that country period, uh, I guess, it was the part when a lot of people ask me what did surprise you the most or what did you learn or what mm. fascinated you? I, I, I often refer to that because 
uh, like yourself, I mean, my experience with the horseshoe was, you know, my time living in Toronto, uh, you know, from the kind of late nineties, you know, to the late two thousands. And that was kind of the horseshoe I knew plus, you know, what I'd heard a bit before, but I didn't know a lot about the, the whole beginnings and the whole country uh, origins of it. So really to get there, it was again, digging out those sources. So, you know, starting with uh, uh, the original owner, uh, his daughter, uh, his grandson, you know, who had some of those memories and then going back into uh, archives of the Globe and Mail, Toronto Star, uh, you know, City of Toronto archives. And, and then, like I said, it, it basically, I might have talked to one person uh, who then put me on to someone else, right? So I, I talked, like as an example, I think I talked to uh, Russell DeCarl, who was in Prairie Oyster, and he knew of a, this photographer that had taken shots and had been around way back you know, in the sixties and that time period. So he was able to give me a lot of great stories. And then, you know, I talked to him and he says, Oh, have you, I can hook you up with this artist who was in the house band back then. So, you know, that's kind of how it happened. And, you know, little by little piece stuff together. And uh, yeah, it was to me, like I said, that was the fascinating part that, you know, to think, you know, all these Nashville, uh, Grand Old Opry stars like Loretta Lynn, Little Jimmy Dickens, Charlie Pride, Ernest Tubb, all these guys, they, they made regular stops at the Horseshoe. And then later on, uh, you know, all into the 70s, that continued with a lot of the, you know, outlaw country movement with the Willie Nelsons and Waylon Jennings and, uh, you know, the late Jerry Jeff Walker, who just passed away recently. So were you, were you a country fan prior to your, your research, David? Uh, yeah, I'd say I, I am, you know, country music, like <clears throat> all labels of genres. It's like, okay. I, I wouldn't say I'm a mainstream country or what you hear on the radio these days, but I kind of, wow. I kind of got into country, uh, kind of through that back door of alternative, what they called alternative country, uh, back in the nineties, you know, discovering bands like uncle Tupelo and, uh, you know, the Jayhawks and and those kind of bands. But then through that, that's how I went back and started discovering, you know, the Willie Nelsons and uh, artists like that. So I'd say, yeah, I do enjoy country. It's all depends, you know, what uh, type of country it is. And uh, uh, I've always loved pretty much all styles of music, but, you know, uh, some of these artists that I, I did research on, I mean, that was part of it too. I'd, I'd go back and, you know, I'm a big vinyl collector and, you know, I'd buy some of these records just to, cause I thought, you know, was hearing about some of these artists that had played the horseshoe that I really didn't know a lot about. Right. Uh, like, uh, Bill Anderson and, uh, like I said, Ernest Tubb or people I'd heard the name, but really didn't know their music. So, uh, you know, it was a good way to kind of expand my, uh, musical tastes a little bit as well. A lot of eBay research, I'm sure, to get some of those <coughs> copies yeah. of vinyl. Yeah, and just yes, uh, looking in, uh, you know, the bins of the various uh, record stores uh, throughout Toronto. Uh, yeah, sure, it was always a, a a good time. One of the things that um, you touched on there, uh, short bit there, was um, around the house bands, and that's one of the things I found really fascinating from the book. 
fuck. And again, as a musician, I know it, but I, you know, I don't, I don't think of the house band per se. Like, I mean, I think it was the story of Stomp and Tom and the house band. And then when he came back, there was a different house band and they didn't get along. And so, you know, they brought back in, I think it was, I think it was a bit of a star at the time brought back in the yes. other house band. Right. And like, I found that so interesting to listen to and think about from that perspective that, you know, I just, I don't really think of that. If I think of a house band, I think of a band that plays, you know, at a, a hotel lounge. I don't think of the band that's backing all these famous musicians that you talk about that are coming up from Nashville. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. But yeah, it, I, like you said, uh, that was something uh, for me as well was a bit of a revelation. And uh, the one of the, one of the gentlemen I was able to interview uh, was a member of the house band, uh, Johnny Burke. And the best story he told uh, was how he had to learn these songs, you know, for he, he basically listened to his radio late at night and, and listened to these songs of these, uh, you know, coming in from Nashville or, you know, wheeling West Virginia or wherever it was. And, uh, tr you know, trying to get it. So when they came, he was prepared, right? Because that's how it worked. Uh, you know, they were expected, often these bands couldn't afford to bring, you know, the whole whole crew uh, when they went on tour. So that's kind of the way it often worked. There'd be a local band that, uh, you know, would would learn all the stars' songs and, and, you know, back them up for the week. I'm wondering, did any of these bands sort of take off and join the artist? uh on the road rather than stay at the horseshoe did you come across anything like that i i didn't actually but uh you know i wouldn't doubt if uh you know the odd player here or there i mean it might have led to some side gigs uh right or some session work that kind of thing for sure one of the other things i thought was fascinating again to think of as a musician was they talked about was the change the the, the change from a musician's perspective from a paid engagement to part of the door. And, and I think like, that's what we did as we played for part of the door, you know? Um, that was another shift sort of that, I, I, that for me that you caught, that was as much about the time, the shift in the time than it was necessarily specifically the horseshoe that I found fascinating. Uh, for sure. And, and that's what uh, I think was interesting about this as well. And I tried to do, it wasn't just about a venue, right? It was about how that venue uh, spoke for kind of the, the entire music ecosystem and, and artists and, and how uh, things changed and have evolved and, and examples like that about the way artists were paid. And some of those things, it was clubs like the horseshoe that kind of uh, led the way and, uh, you know, made these changes. What was, um, when I think of the evolution, because you, you do cover, you know, significant evolution over time of different, you know, not only different owners, not only different bookers, but even the sound. Like I, like I think of my, probably my favorite punk band, my favorite punk front man, Frankie Venom and Teenage yeah. Head. And like that story, like that's, that's so the opposite of, not opposite, but it's so counter to a lot of the history of the club. Mm -hmm. um, like, how did, how did you find that in terms of like, you know, just having to sort of, it was almost, almost jump around in those genres, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess that was the neat thing that uh, the Horseshoe Tavern, unlike some clubs, yeah. uh, 
you know, it has evolved and has pretty much seen every every style of music in there, right? As as you mentioned, it's gone from country to punk uh, to blues to you know the singer songwriter. Uh, you know, it's even had reggae in there. You know, it's it, it you can't really pigeonhole it to one genre, even though you know probably in more recent years it's become known for kind of alternative rock or alt country or some you know that kind of thing but you know overall uh i wanted to try and capture that uh in the in the book and i i think that is a challenge with writing a book like this there's always m- many more stories that could be told and uh you know i'm sure like you referenced the early part I, uh, that was uh, partly due to the interviews I was able to conduct and the time period and what fascinated me, I guess, too, that I thought uh, readers would find fascinating. But, uh, you know, there would be lots more probably now that I, I could even tell from, you know, the, the 90s, 2000s on, uh, even yeah. since this book has come out, right? I mean, since it's been published three years ago, I mean, yeah. so many people have said, oh, did you... You know, what about this story or <laughs> did you hear about this? And I, I think that's a challenge with something like this. And uh, I joked, uh, you know, throughout uh, my promotion of this book is, uh, you know, the the title is a bit of a misnomer that it's a legendary horseshoe tavern, a complete history, because, you know, there's no such thing as a complete history. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. There, there's a lot of stories for sure uh, to be told. Uh, a couple of things I want to bring up. Uh, you'll you'll realize, David, after you hang up with us, that we're not professional interviewers. We tend to jump around yeah. all over the place. But uh, you know, we were talking earlier about uh, backing bands, and uh, I heard a story recently. Uh, Conan O'Brien was uh, was speaking with uh, Bruce Springsteen, who uh, who just came out with with a new album. I haven't heard it yet, but I've heard glowing reviews mm-hmm. uh, about it. Some of his best work, I've been told, but. Um, Conan was talking about he Conan had a house band called the Max Weinberg Seven, mm. uh, and we we know Max Weinberg being uh, the drummer uh, for the E Street Band, which is um, uh, Bruce Springsteen's uh, band. And uh, Conan was telling these stories on on how Bruce Springsteen used to call up Conan and go, "Hey, I'm going on tour. Is it okay if I borrow Max mm. from you?" Yeah. And Conan's going, you're the boss. He's your drummer. I'm borrowing him from my house band. You know, this little gig here, that this little TV show that nobody watches. You can have him. He's your yeah. drummer. Just when you're done, let me know. And I'll ask Max if he wants to join us. So that's interesting about uh, how we think of, uh, of, uh, of house bands these days. Mm-hmm. Um, well, well, Max, uh, I believe, played, played the horseshoe. Uh a couple of years ago. Uh, nice. Probably yeah. blew the roof off of that. That guy drums harder than anyone I know. Yeah. He really goes after it. But I wanted to ask you, David, you know, because, you know, obviously I, I don't want to sort of brush it under the table. You know, we, we are still in, in some form of, uh, of lockdown. And, you know, you talked about places like the horseshoe being, um, you know, one of the places in Toronto, specifically because it's a venue, but generally because it's a venue, it's a bar that relies on people coming inside mm-hmm. and spending money inside. Um, I'm wondering if you've heard any 
So, that, you know, stories from the Horseshoe or other venues uh, across Toronto on how they're doing, how they're adapting, um, or anything like that. Well, I, I still, I know the uh, the owners of the Horseshoe well, and I kind of follow them a bit on social media and talk to them once in a while, but uh, I know it's been a, a real struggle for them. Um, like like all venues, uh, you know, the, once the pandemic hit and, uh, you know, they were forced to close back in March and, uh, you know, then they were able to reopen, but with certain restrictions, they had the patio uh, and, so they were able to open more as a bar, right? Uh, with the patio, they looked at trying to bring in some food to uh, supplement. Uh, but the biggest thing is that a place like the Horseshoe, it is a music bar uh, these days, first and foremost. And, and that's where they make the bulk of their revenue. So the fact that even if they're able to open the front bar, able to have you know, the, the sales they get from that versus, you know, a night with a concert and all the, uh, you know, the revenue, you know, from the show, it, it can't even come close to comparing. I mean, it's only maybe 30% uh, and they still have staff to pay and everything else. And I know there was an article uh, in the Globe uh, just today or yesterday talking about how these clubs, when they do come back, uh, they're going to have to pay you know, higher insurance rates. Oh, insurance to, rates I hear are going to go through the roof. Like, so the, these are places that already their margins were pretty slim to begin with. And to suddenly have all these other uh, things happen. I, I know the Horseshoe, uh, the city of Toronto, uh, during this pandemic, uh, there was some uh, legislation passed that gave them a break on their uh, taxes uh, and I remember seeing uh, Jeff from the Horseshoe post something and say that was like a savior for us. That kind of bought us some more time, basically. Right. But I mean, beyond that, I, I live in Kitchener-Waterloo now where I grew up and uh, already here, uh, the Starlight, which was a, a, a fantastic local venue that all the Canadian bands like the Rio Statics and Low So Low, uh, Skydingers, you name it, over the years have kind of come through and play. Uh, in Uptown Waterloo, it's closed. Uh, a newer venue that was in downtown Kitchener, the Rhapsody Barrel Bar, closed. Uh, you know, right now I'm working on a story uh, for Amplify, which is the National Music Center's uh, kind of online magazine about uh, Logan's Pub out in Victoria that just closed, uh, you know, last week. And I mean, I think, you know, it's not going to end uh, the list of these venues that by the time this pandemic is over, uh, unfortunately, there's going to be more, you know, casualties. I hate to say that, use that word, but, you know, that that's what's going to happen. Uh, I mean, even the ones that are able to, you know, try new things and be nimble and adapt, I, I think there's just so much stacked against them uh, that it's, it'll be hard for some of these places to to get through this. It's interesting because there's um, a, one of Durham's favorite bars, the Tartan in Oshawa, and it just closed. My my kids and oh. the former owners went there um, on Sunday for our last beer. And I was talking because my, my son was lamenting the fact that my, well, both my kids, my son and my daughter were both lamenting the fact that the Tartan was going to close and uh, or was closing. And well, the discussion we had, and I don't know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm hoping to look at the positives 
as, as positive as you can out of it, which is, you know, once we get to the other side of this, is there going to be an opportunity for young people to like a renaissance or create new out of some of these existing places. I don't know. I, I'd, yeah. I'd like to think, you know, we've seen, we've seen sort of turnover in, in the past and generational. So I don't yeah. know. I, yeah. I, the optimist in me, I, I, I'd like to hope that there is uh, uh, my, my fear is that some of these iconic places, uh, mm -hmm. you know, like the Troubadour in LA or, you know, that you just hope, those places don't uh, end up going under and uh, you really, because of the value of the property there and, you know, it's like some people come in and, you know, want to redevelop it as something else. Uh, but, but hopefully uh, you think when we come out of this, uh, eventually there, there will be renewed hope, but uh, there'll be definitely a lot of musicians with new music to promote and share and, uh, I think there's going to be a real desire uh, for from all of us, right, to yeah. hear live music again. So hopefully, these places will still be around, uh, and maybe some new ones will will come will will develop as well. Yeah, and I, it's it's interesting you say that because I think of you know even cover it in the book in terms of the cost or not the cost but the value of the property where the horseshoe is right now. I guess mm -hmm. I, if if I think back to sort of you know, the, the, the renaissances and the, the not, not pre-gentrification of certain areas, like, you know, the big bop could only be the big bop because at that time it wasn't a great area. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, um, amount of the amount of bars along that strip, along the horseshoe that, you know, really need to many that are gone. I think of, um, the bamboo, mm -hmm. right. Like that was iconic. Um, so yeah. yeah, I guess, I guess, unfortunately, unfortunately we may not keep the venues, but I'm hoping the spirit and the entrepreneurial spirit will be there for younger people, maybe just in different areas. I don't know. Yeah. That, that's my hope as well. I, I really, I think that music uh, is something we all need. It's something that helps heal. And I think that's something this pandemic has shown. I mean, mm -hmm. You know, all these stream shows and things that uh, artists have done, it, it's definitely not the same, but uh, the fact so many people have tuned in and realized, you know, they need that uh, during these times. Uh, like you said, when we come out of this, I think, you know, there will be some some more of these young entrepreneurs. Uh, that, And I think the whole business model probably will need to be uh, – you know, examined and maybe the club as it's run today, uh, live music venue may not work. There might be other models that, uh, you know, might have to be looked at, but uh, yeah. so I'm optimistic for the future for sure. You nailed it on the head there, David. Um, I, I know we're, we're talking on election Tuesday. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to make any political uh, prognostications <laughs> now, but I think, you know, there's a couple of things that are against Greg, uh, you and I, and David, you as well, being able to go see uh, live music in these small venues in Toronto. Uh, number one, the taxes on the overpriced or overvalued real estate in Toronto mm -hmm. uh, is going to make sure, unfortunately, that there's going to be little to no venues uh, left. You know, there, 
you know, I don't know whether an indie band is going to want to play in a, in a library room um, or, or will they be able to afford to play, um, you know, larger venues, right? Uh, and, and then you've got artists over the past six, seven, eight months figuring out ways of performing via live stream, uh, engaging with their fan base over social uh, and things like Bandcamp and CD Baby, you know, helping out artists. Uh, and, and then you've got, uh, you know, the ability to, to collect, uh, you know, whether it's donations or fees or, or sort of online tickets through places like Twitch. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think in Toronto specifically, I think things are going to change. And, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, as soon as things open up after the pandemic, that there'll be no more live music because everything's going to be closed down regardless. But I think we're seeing a change. And this pandemic is sort of forcing artists, forcing venues, unfortunately, to make sort of hard hard decisions and, and, and hard choices. Um, I hope you're wrong. Yeah, not, I hope you're yeah. wrong. Not necessarily. Yeah. Yes, I hope I'm Debbie, wrong as well. Debbie Downer. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> David's got a gun out. He's all bummed out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but uh, I think uh, one of the, to, to one of your points, uh, it is about being nimble. I think that's a one thing that this pandemic has taught all of us. It doesn't matter if we're the arts uh, or what sector, or what uh, industry we're involved in, but specifically to live music and the people have had to adapt and realize, hey, I, I, if I'm an, a musician, I, I'm normally on the road 200 days a year. You know, I, I, I can't, you know, I, I, I can't tour anymore. What am I going to do? Well, let's give this live streaming a try. Uh, and like you said, the, the fans, I think that's one of the things that, uh, has been a real silver lining here that musicians, you know, you don't have to be the Taylor Swift, uh, you know, or the Sean Mendez. Uh, those people are always going to have, you know, the super fans, but, you know, these smaller bands, smaller artists, singers, songwriters, they've realized now over the years, they've built up such a following of fans. And during this time, like you said, whether it's through Bandcamp and, uh, or whether it's, uh, you know, through them online, just putting out a call, uh, you know, to donate some money through, you know, some kind of uh, uh, campaign. Uh, it, it's amazing. That's what I've heard an artist I've talked to, to, to see that these fans have really come to the table and supported them. Uh, and so, yeah. so that's a real positive, I think, uh, for sure. Greg talked earlier on about being a... Uh... Did you see recovering musician, Greg, or former musician? Recovering. <laughs> recovering? Recovering, recovering musician. Uh, he won't tell you that uh, they came up at the same time as the Tragically Hip, managed by uh, the uh, the legendary Jake Gold. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I will say that. Uh, but I know, Greg, you guys were based out of Oshawa. And uh, you, you did say, you know, you bought buses over. I remember you telling me, I'm, do you, did you guys ever play the Horseshoe? back in the day no no we never ended up playing the horseshoe it's funny because jeff our singer for our band his mom knew kenny and x-ray well Mm. in fact jeff jeff tells a story of coming home as a teenager i guess as a young teenager um, from the cottage and there's kenny and x-ray and the band moxie which is mike reno before Mm. it was lover boy 
on his on his front lawn in in Oshawa. I've all them a few a few few too many pints in. Anyway, years later, we reach out to Kenny uh, to see if we can play the horseshoe or somewhere. And I think I think he ended up putting us in at the Riv at the time. Mm. Um, but I never played the horseshoe. We did X rays. We did. I think yeah. I think my last gig was X rays. Um, and you, you, you talk about it a bit in the book, but it'd be interesting to know what, what you came up with, you know, around the other clubs, not just the ones that, that Kenyon X-Ray owned, but mm-hmm. you know, like even Lee's Palace, which is obviously now part of the main group, but you know, what, what did you find out about other clubs while you were, while you were researching the book? Well, you touched on the one. I mean, that was a fascinating part. I didn't know is how at that certain point the horseshoe was in trouble and uh, Kenny and X-Ray uh, came in uh, along with Richard Crook. And, uh, you know, the three of them kind of, you know, brought the horseshoe into a new era. And part of that, they got so successful, they opened up these other clubs, right? I mean, like you said, their X-Ray had his own place. You know, there was the ultrasound. Um, and so that that part of it was was fascinating to see how, you know, it, it spawned these other clubs yeah. uh, during that time. Uh, but the other thing, I mean, even talking to artists, uh, like, uh, you mentioned earlier about the bamboo and places like that. Uh, sometimes you think too many clubs is, uh, is not a good thing as a club owner. You think, oh, that's more competition, but the reality was at one point in time and there was enough to go around and, and having all those other clubs it, it forced you to kind of bring your game up, I think, a bit more. And and, and yeah. some of them were kind of niche uh, as well, but it also allowed the artists, because I think at one point in time, the, the local musicians, like a Blue Rodeo, they could only play, uh, you know, so many dates within a month at a certain club. So, you know, they could do that rotation then where there's enough clubs around that they, they if they wanted to play a few more gigs in town, they, they could, you know, just have more options. So, yeah. Yeah, it, it, we had we had such a. I, I think of the '80s and the '90s, and you know, Izzy and the Cabana Room, and like there were just so many great little little rooms to play. But I'm not, I'm not saying little, but you know, what I mean, there were so many. I mean, I guess they were little, relatively speaking, compared yeah, to like the horseshoe. Enough. But there were just, you know, to your point, you know, we could we could almost play under a pseudonym name. And just bounce mm-hmm. around and just just cut our chops throughout the week, right? Like just yeah. practice the tunes and get it, and then head to Lee's and you know, as KK said, Cream said about you know bringing in a couple of busloads from Durham College mm-hmm. on a Saturday night, and Craig Morris would love us for that. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah. It's um, so it was uh, such a great such a great time in live music in Toronto for sure, for sure. Yeah. So so segueing that into your new project or your, your current project, I guess, you know, tell yeah. us about the book you're doing around Massey hall, because, you know, there's another venue building with such a storied history. Yeah. Well, I guess after this book came out, uh, and I thought, Hey, you know, I guess I can do this. I, I wrote a book. Uh, I, I thought what next? Uh, and, you know, again, I thought, well, I, how can I be the one to write this? I, I'm sure I'm not the first one in the, you know, that's proposed a book in Massey Hall. And uh, surprisingly, well well before the horseshoe and book and all this came about, I mean, many years ago, when I first thought of writing a book, Massey Hall was the first place I thought of. And at the time, I, I discovered there was a book that had already been written uh, to coincide with its centennial. 
uh, back in 1995. So I kind of pushed it aside, right? This was late nineties probably. And I thought, well, that's too soon for another book. Uh, but you know, flash ahead this many years and after this book and I thought, why not pitch it again to the publisher? Uh, they thought it was a good idea. And again, another place where I have a lot of special memories, uh, especially going to see a lot of shows with my dad, uh, you know, in the last, uh, decade and a half or so are you still with oh he's gone that's oh he's come back david you with us yeah now i am i don't know what happened there but okay yeah greg greg was yeah. asking what you thought of the uh the hockey game last no he wasn't <laughs> <laughs> i don't know uh, um uh, no but you were you were you were talking a bit about you know the the, the research and the history of 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 massey hall and um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, I mean, I've seen so many shows there over the years and it's just like, just, you know, uh, anyway, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the book, to that book as well, because, you know, I can only imagine where you're going to go with it because you've got so, so much yeah, to go with. Yeah. Well, that, that again, is a challenge is, you know, as a writer, you're always faced with that, uh, especially when dealing with history, there those are the choices you have to make, what to include, what to not include and uh, what to focus on. But, uh, you know, I, I've luckily this pandemic has given me a bit more time to, to spend with it. I mean, originally the book was going to come out uh, this fall uh, was the initial publication date. But uh, I mean, as it stands right now, Massey Hall probably won't open till sometime next fall. So uh, that's what we're planning to try and coincide with the, the reopening of the, the re revitalized uh, Massey. And so, you know, I, I'm working away. I'm kind of in the editing phase right now. And, uh, you know, then I'll be kind of finalizing the photos and yeah, it's, it's, it's exciting. It's, uh, and I, I can't wait till uh, the hall reopens. I mean, they just earlier this week, uh, you know, they unveiled some of the, the work that's been done with the facade thought outside and you know the original massey music hall uh, etched uh, in the 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 bricks uh, that's back with some of the original stained glass windows in and you know all the renderings i've seen and i was fortunate to get in there for a few tours as the construction was i was going to ask you if you had a chance done. to get yeah. inside well yeah so i had a few tours uh, uh before the pandemic and yeah it's just it's yeah. like you said pretty special uh you know i'm confident that uh you know, there's some people that were worried, you know, it's such a reverential place and uh, that they're going to mess with that. But everything I've seen, it's really about taking, uh, you know, the history of the place and all the the elements people love and just, you know, modernizing it and bringing it to a new level and then adding a lot of amenities that really were lacking and needed, uh, right, uh, in the 21st century. Yeah. Yeah. So, David, sure. as you know, we, we've got... Uh, about 10 minutes with you. Um, I'm, I'm interested in, in, in this. I wanted to ask, actually, before I get to that, I, in your book, you talked about the horseshoe. There was a point in time, I don't know if it was the 70s, did, did they change their name at one point in time to Stagger Lees, or did I misread that? No, that, that happened uh, in kind of, that was the early 80s. Early it was a, a really rough time, uh, you know, for the horseshoe. And uh, yeah, they basically went bankrupt. And uh, that was one of those uh, sad uh, times where, unfortunately, a 
a lot of the old early memorabilia from like those country days, right? Apparently there used to be photos on the wall, right? You go into some of these venues and places with all the artists. And uh, as you know, at Massey Hall is an example, right? Down the Centuries Bar, uh, you know, with pictures of the artists signed, you know, thanks Massey, whatever. I mean, I think there was a lot of that uh, stuff that, you know, it, it all went off in an auction and uh, no one ever found out, where, you know, where this stuff went. Uh, but the the important thing or the great news is that it was really short lived. Uh, th- that's when, you know, the original owner, Jack Starr, kind of came back and, as I mentioned earlier, recruited, uh, you know, Kenny Sprackman, uh, who he knew, uh, you know, had a good business acumen and had run other clubs uh, like the Hotel Isabella. And uh, he brought in X-Ray and, yeah, you know, they ever since then. Uh, you know, that little blip uh, is is what it is. So it's just a little well, blemish in the history. Yeah, and a yeah. lot of people like to just, uh, you know, forget about it. But uh, it, it was it was part of the history. And it, it, that's an example that, you know, if it had gone another way, I mean, you know, the horseshoe as we know it. And I think all of us talking here tonight, we never would have, uh, you know, ever gone and seen a show there. So and that would have been uh, tragic. So for sure. Let's go around the table. I want to get your your favorite concert at both the Horseshoe and Massey Hall. So uh, let's start with Greg. My favorite concert, probably Massey Hall would have been my first time there. Um, and I don't go to concerts by myself. It would have been probably 82, maybe. And it was to see Depeche Mode. All right. And that was... I got goosebumps. I'm a keyboardist, so you got to give me that. Yeah. Um, favorite show at the at the shoe. Wow. Uh, I don't know. It could have been like probably because probably because well, Steve Davis, who owns Radical Road, who's one of our sponsors. I don't know if you know Steve Davis or not. Well, David um, plays with um, uh, Beyond the Flood. Okay. Um, anyway, he plays with Bedini and all the guys. So it's probably this go back to the sky diggers Christmas parties. Probably I would have to, I mean, it wasn't the most epic. I think state was was one of the most epic, like single performances I saw on that stage. Um, But yeah, just those, those Christmas get togethers. They were fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can imagine. Uh, David, what what about yourself? Uh, It's always a hard question, but uh, you know, with Massey hall, uh, I mean, definitely the Neil Young shows I've seen there. He's he's always oh. been he's always oh. been one of my my idols, and uh, <laughs> you know I've seen him uh, probably more than any other artists over the years. Uh, I've gone down to Farm Aid many many times, but the Massey Hall shows, uh, yeah, were just spectacular. Uh, uh, and the one time I was like front row center, I think, for the one show and. I remember the ticket. I've never spent that much for a ticket in my life. And my wife was like, oh, you could have sold it. But I saw him twice in the same week. And, uh, you know, those were the the shows, uh, I think, back, uh, what was the album that had just come out? Uh, it, it oh, come recent to one. That was the... Uh... This was probably about 15, hard to believe. Yeah, 15 years ago, plus... 2007 I think wasn't it Lenoise he did some some shows for Lenoise he did those and I don't I didn't get to see those but this okay. one was the chrome, the chrome dreams where he did three shows in the one okay. week 
And I had tickets to two out of the three shows. And I remember, yeah, my wife figured like I could have sold one of the tickets probably for 400 bucks, but you know, I'll never, it, to me, that was a memory. I'm glad oh. I did it. The money didn't mean anything. And uh, the other show would have been a show with my father when I saw Jackson Brown a number of years back. So it was just him solo. He had about 30 guitars on the stage and a couple pianos and people in the crowd shouted out requests. And I, I'd never seen that for, you know, an artist of his stature. Uh, and it was kind of neat to see where someone, you know, yell out, uh, you know, whatever song it was. And he was ready to play something and they'd be like, doctor, my eyes. And then, you know, he'd say, oh, OK, I could play that. And he'd put, you know, one guitar down and and then go and uh, sit down at the piano and play that song. So and to think that was at a venue with, you know, 2,500 people. And yeah. that, that's what's so incredible about Massey Hall is that intimacy that, uh, you know, that that could happen somewhere with, you know, that many people in attendance, but nice. And, and then the horseshoe. Yeah. Same as uh, Greg, so many shows, it's hard to tell. I mean, the sky diggers Christmas ones were always, uh, you know, a great party and a lot of fun, but uh, probably for me, one of the, uh, it was right around now, I think uh, uh, how many years ago now, probably at least 10 or something or more, but I saw the drive by truckers, uh, and they played like probably till almost two in the morning. It was one of those shows where, you know, I can't remember who opened up, but I mean, they didn't go on till 1130, right? Like I can't imagine going out to a show like that uh, anymore, <laughs> but uh, it was just a fantastic show. And it was at the time when, you know, Jason Isbell, who has gone on to an amazing, you know, solo career. And I saw him at Massey Hall was another great show, but he was in the band at that time. And so they had three incredible songwriters, three guitarists, and it, it was loud. And uh, that was a, a pretty memorable night. Nice. Awesome. So I, I, before I go, David, before I forget, we're going to have to get you on two more times. Okay. One after uh, your book, Massey Hall. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is written. We'll get you on to talk about that. And Greg already knows uh, we're going to get you on uh, again to do a, a deep dive into Neil Young. Okay. Um, I, I, was, I was I was wondering I was wondering if he paid you to say that. That's why. Yeah, I was, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. It was uh, my absolute favorite. Uh, uh, I've, I've unfortunately only seen him twice. Twice. Twice in concert. Once was when. Uh, Oasis opened up for him. Oh, at the uh, up in uh, Barry. Barry. Oh, I was at that show. Yeah, I remember that. I I always wow. joked that uh, one of the uh, Gallagher brothers there, you know, was like, "Come on, show your appreciation." I'm like, "Yeah, wait till Neil and wait. Crazy Horse comes out, and then oh. you show them some appreciation." And, oh yeah, my goodness! That was, I that just was fantastic. Yeah, I thought Oasis was awesome, but then all of a sudden Neil comes on, and the noise level just like tripled the crowd, like all of a sudden tripled in size. Yeah. It was, I was like, wow. And uh, yeah, that was my first time seeing him. Then I saw him, uh, I think it was at the ACC, maybe three, four years ago. I saw him and uh, I kick myself uh, every time somebody brings up his Massey Hall shows, like Lenoise mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. When he came and he did a festival just north of Toronto, maybe two, three years ago. Um, yeah, when he was traveling with uh, with uh, Willie Nelson's right, yeah. um, son's band. 
Oh yeah, I, I love him. I've chatted with uh, Lucas, and I've seen him a few times down at Farm Aid and at South by Southwest. He, and it's amazing. His band, I mean, they channel Crazy Horse, and they, I think they've kind of, you know, made Neil excited again to play that rock and roll. So yeah, yeah, that yeah. that yeah. Oh man, okay, Neil Young. I got to make sure I go. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> gotta, another I, episode all on Neil. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, my favorite shows were seeing uh, July Talk at uh, at Massey Hall. Mm. Uh, they just put on a phenomenal show, and uh, I haven't been to the Horseshoe so many times. But uh, Greg mentioned uh, when Sate sort of uh, played there with uh, with you and Jefferson, uh, Randy the Prince, uh, and the Crooked, which are two other up and coming rock bands. But uh, mm-hmm. yes. Some amazing music live for sure, especially in these more smaller, intimate venues. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think is where where music fans in Toronto are uh, really miss out if if they don't go. Yep, for sure, for sure. Oh, so definitely. before we finish it off, I got a question for you. First thing, I need two things. One, when you talked about front row at Massey Hall, it triggered actually an even better experience I had which was taking my little brother who was like 14 at the time. Mm. And we sat front row for in excess before kick exploded. Oh, wow. That was, that was incredible. Sorry. Um, And I also realized, I think I screwed up Steve's band name. I think I said beyond the floods before the flood. So Steve, I apologize. Anyway. um, So (laughs) the question that we like to ask our guests before we finish off is what are you listening to lately? What's in your earbuds? Yeah. Yeah, I, I go back to, as I said, I, I collect vinyl. I, I probably have like, uh, you know, over 500 or more. And my kids laugh at me like, you know, it's in this digital age, why I do that. So I go back and I'm listening to a lot of uh, classic stuff uh, still all the time. But in terms of new stuff, I mean, uh, I recently got the uh, the new Gord Downey, which I've been enjoying. Um and beyond that, I'm trying to think, uh, you know, there's just so much great new music all the time. Uh, uh, what, what other ones have I, I bought or listened to uh, recently? Well, like Julian Taylor, a Canadian, uh, used to be in Staggered Crossing. I think his stuff's great uh, uh, in terms of that singer-songwriter, uh, William Prince. Uh, I think his album that came out earlier this year is fantastic. Uh, so I've, I've kind of been more in that mode of kind of the, the singer songwriter, uh, folk stuff, but you know, I'm always looking to discover new music and I, I try and, uh, I mean, my son's, uh, I listen to some of the bands he's into these days. Like he listens to, uh, water park and, uh, some of these other, uh, groups I, I kind of, uh, you know, didn't know a lot about, so. You know, and same, even my daughter, she's more into the pop, uh, what's on the radio, and I try and give it a chance, but, uh, you know, I, I still <laughs> still prefer rock and roll, that's for sure. It, it's funny It's funny you say that, because I think of my son, like, or my, my son, but my kids, more my son, he's got better taste than my daughter. Hopefully she doesn't hear this. Um, but no, but exploring some new bands like even Grandson and Lawrence, you know, two very different bands, but, you know, two amazing young groups. Um, so it is, it's awesome to, to start learning from our kids and mm-hmm. experiencing those different bands as well. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, and I think of it that that's how I kind of get into some of the Neil Young. I mean, I, I've, I 
picked up my dad's copy of Harvest and, you know, Jimmy Buffett, uh, who I'm a big fan of, uh, you know, same thing. My dad had his records. And uh, so it's neat when you, you see that kind of, uh, you can share your discoveries. I mean, they, they got to be ready and open to, uh, to listen to them, right. And discover them on your own. I find that's the challenge. If you kind of say, Oh, listen to this or, you know, they'll, they'll just tune out. Right. And that's a neat thing uh, about music, right. It's timeless sometimes too. And you can always discover something new. So. For sure. David, thank you so much for spending some time with us. No, appreciate it. Uh, The book is the legendary Horseshoe Tavern, a complete history. And there's an upcoming book as well, Massey Hall, an enduring legacy. Uh, David, if people want to find out uh, more about uh, your book um, and what you're up to, where's the best place for them to to go and stalk you digitally? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Wherever. Type my name on Google, Twitter. Uh, I'm at uh, McPhersoncom, C-O-M-M, but... uh, uh, the one thing I forgot to mention, which is uh, kind of neat, is uh, the book was just released as an audiobook, my horseshoe book, uh, awesome. about a month a month or so ago now. So, you know, I know my wife is loves listening to audiobooks, and it's become a lot more popular. So, if that's something uh, uh, people are interested in, they can check that out. And I Guilty. was, uh, yeah, I was honored to have uh, Jeff Woods uh, yeah. uh, narr- narrated it. So. Uh, that's another way you can discover the book as well if if you want. And I will say, I will say, if you're going to listen to the book, don't have your previous settings where you're flying through a business book at 1.25 set on <laughs> <Yeah>. Audible because <laughs> we're listening to it. And my wife's like, I just can't stand this narrator. Like, I I don't know if I can handle it because we're driving up to the cottage last weekend listening yeah. to it. And uh, and she goes, do you have your settings set to one to a faster speed? And I look and go, oh yeah. I slow it down. She goes, okay, that's that's Jeff Woods. Okay, yeah, <laughs> it just that's more felt like that's Jeff more like Woods it. on helium. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, awesome. Well, awesome. It's a pleasure pleasure to have you on. Like I really like uh, you know wanting to have you on for a while, and and so yeah. glad you joined us. So appreciate your your time and your thoughts and your your experiences and your stories. No problem. It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. So thanks again. Thanks so much, David. Take care. David, appreciate it. All right. You too. Have a good night, guys.